Open your Bibles. Book of Nehemiah. I said this uh, to my wife, I think, or to somebody. You guys are going to be hearing a lot from me this morning. hope that's all right. I want to teach out of Nehemiah chapter 6. And before I read the text, I want to just say that for those uh, who are visiting, I'll give a very quick kind of overview of what we have been endeavoring to do. We're studying through the book, and I say book because historically, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book and were for eight to 900 years until somewhere around the third century um, when they were separated um, within the historical church. But we're reading them and studying them as one book, and we have done thus far where we're seeing the story of the people of Israel is what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. This is a time towards the end of the, the end of the kingdom of Israel that was established by David in the Old Testament. It was taken into, it was conquered, Israel was, as was the kingdom of Judah. Um, I feel like there's so much to be said in an overview. <laughs> I keep adding like more to my synopsis here. Um, we have uh, Israel is taking captivity by Babylon. Babylon is conquered by Persia. And we find ourselves now here in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah at the end of that captivity. There are multiple waves of exiles returning back to Jerusalem for the restoration of three specific things that we have studied. The first is the restoration or the rebuilding of the altar and of the temple of God, which is representative of the worship of the people of God. And these are three distinctives that are vitally significant to both the people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, but also to us today. So we study the Old Testament both with the historical context, but also with an eye towards who we are as believers in Jesus Christ today, because there is present day application. So the first, in Ezra comes back, there's a wave of people that come, thousands, tens of thousands of people that return with Zerubbabel and with Joshua to rebuild the altar, to reestablish the temple and the worship of the people of God. Secondly, Ezra returns years later in another wave, bringing with him more people from captivity back to Jerusalem for the purpose of restoring the law. And we studied how Ezra was a scholar and a studier and a, a man of the law of Moses. And the law, of course, being the ethics and the values of the people of God for how they are to believe and how they are to live. And then thirdly, we have the man Nehemiah, and he's in the, the third wave. And he comes back for the restoration under the impetus of building the, or rebuilding the walls of the city. And the walls of the city speak to the distinctiveness or the separateness of the people of God from the world in which they exist within. Separate in the sense of their identity, their values, their life, etc. And so those are the three things that we have studied as we've gone through. And the book of Ezra opens with these words, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. It says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all this kingdom, and thus setting both the tone as well as the expectation that it is God first and foremost who is at work within the affairs of the world 
and of all of the earth to accomplish his will and his plan. It's what we call providence. So we've set up also this theme of the providence of God moving not just upon the hearts and lives of a believer, but using any and all individuals, humans, and his creation to bring about his will and his plan. And so these two books have spanned the greater part of 100 years. It's not just chronological that we've read them in the sense of this happened, this happened, this happened, but we have studied and we've seen how it's God that has been working all throughout these decades to bring these circumstances about for the purpose of the restoration of his people because in captivity, the distinctiveness of his people was essentially eliminated more or less. So God is restoring and he's showing and he's putting an emphasis on the value of these distinctives of his people. You hear what I'm saying in that? There is a value of the distinctiveness of being other than the world that is around us. And so this 100 years, we also have seen, thirdly, just a similar kind of pattern or storyline that has been told throughout these two books. And it's this. There is the people of God who are called to a task. And then at some point, they meet some form of opposition, which causes them to cease from the work. At which point, God stirs their hearts again, whether it's through an individual calling them back to faithfulness or some other circumstance, the Lord stirs the hearts of the people and the work resumes. At which point, the work is completed and then ultimately and unfortunately to a degree, the work or the faithfulness of the people in obedience fails to some degree. And so we just see this happening over and over again throughout these two books. And if you were with us last week, I said this statement that it isn't that we would somehow listen to these record, re- records, these records and accounts and think, well, gosh, if they couldn't do it, well, how am I supposed to be able to do it? The purpose of this pattern, listen to me, please, the purpose of this pattern of humanity being called by God, diligently laboring, failing in faithlessness, coming back again, failing again, coming back, maybe not quite doing it, was always to point us to the better and ultimate fulfillment that would come in Jesus Christ. And the new and living way, as Hebrews talks about, that was made possible through Christ and those who would come into the faith have now received a new ability, if you will, a divine ability through the, tr- the, the transformation of their nature from earthly to eternal, that now we have a new way of living this life that is attainable, not perfectly, but it is attainable in obedience and faithfulness because of Jesus Christ. So this is what we have been studying, and I felt like it was important for us to remember these things, especially, again, I know we have many visitors here this morning, but it was important for us just to keep reminding ourselves because it's easy when we study the Old Testament just to get caught up in the historicity of it. But what we're wanting and laboring to do is understand, okay, how is it applicable? What was happening then and what is God saying to us now? And so with with that reminder and that overview, we come today to Nehemiah chapter 6, where God's people, they're closing in on the completion of that third and final phase, and we're actually going to see it where the rebuilding of the wall is finished, and the great city of Jerusalem once again is back to her glory, at least to a great degree. And it reminds us again that, that as we see this happening, that opposition is going to arise, 
And we're going to almost see the same narrative, as I said a moment ago, played out again. But there's something that's in it for us, so do not worry. But the opposition reminds us that as the people of God, we live amongst the enemy. But, and I've made that point a couple of times now as I've taught through, but I want to say to us this morning, because this is what my heart was stirred in, not only does the church or the people of God exist and advance and move amongst its enemy, but more importantly, the hope and the promise for the people of God is this, that the plans of the enemy will not prevail against her. And I was reminded of the words of Jesus himself to the apostle Peter, where he says to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And he says what? That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is something for the people of God to establish themselves within. And if you are not of faith this morning, then what I have to say, with, say to you is that there is a greater hope and a greater significance to this life than just living for what is right in front of you. But that as it was said, as Rick said, that our purpose is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have been created to worship something and we all will worship something. And so the hope of the believer is not in ourselves, but it is, what, it is in what Christ has done for us. And we lean on that and we rest in that and it keeps us from striving in our own efforts. And so what I want to aim for this morning is to continue to remind us as, as many times as needed and as our study through these books gives us opportunity that we are a part of God's church. And as such, ultimately there is nothing earthly or spiritually that can thwart the efforts of God's people apart from our own belief or I guess I should say our own disbelief. There's nothing that can come against God ultimately and what his plan is, and what he wills to accomplish. And so as I was studying, I was reminded of the words of Mordecai to Esther, and, and this kind of goes along with this confidence that I'm asking and hoping that God just establishes us in this morning. The words of Mordecai to Esther, when, when she's faced with that moment of having to go before the king, and she's not supposed to, and, and, and if she does, she risks losing her life. And Mordecai says to her, but, but, but would you, do you not know that perhaps it is for this reason that you have come to the king? Or I've totally lost the paraphrase now. Yes, for such a time as this. So sorry. I'm a, such a terrible Christian. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Not at all. As I was, as I was considering what, what God wanted to plant in us today, it was these words, that who knows if you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this, brothers and sisters. See, God wants us to fix our faith today, both in place and time, so that we wouldn't see that our gospel boldness is not just for some future moment, church. It's for right now. We have been put in this place for this time to live righteously unto him, to live distinctively for him as well. So Nehemiah chapter six, let me read it. And I wanna give you just four um, characteristics of this people who live boldly and live with a sense of, of certainty for this place and time that we have been fixed within by the providence of God. Nehemiah chapter six, I'm gonna begin in verse one. You can follow up here, we'll have it for you if you don't have the, a Bible with you this morning. 
It says this, and this is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm and I sent a messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down now. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that that is why you are rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. In other words, you are a liar. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehebeh, who was confined to his son, Mehedabel? Yep, Mehedabel, who was confined to his home. That was the only time he's going to come up. Let us meet together in the house of God. So Shemaiah... He goes to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, who was confined at his home, and he says to Nehemiah, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and his wife. You were all waiting for me. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Father, we take this portion of text we ask now that you would massage it into our hearts, that you would give it deep roots, Lord. May it bear fruit, the truthfulness of it, and may it encourage us, Lord, for these days in which you have placed us and called us to be in your name. Amen. So how do we maintain a long and steady obedience in the words 
of an author back in the 80s towards faithfulness in Christ, a long and steady obedience towards faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Nehemiah 6 addresses this very question. And it's helpful for our aim today if we just consider very quickly the four portions or segments as they're presented. In verses 1 through 9, there is the first failed attempt to stop the balls rebuilding. And it's Sanballat or Sanballat, depending on how you like to pronounce it, and Geshem. And they're trying to just trick Nehemiah to come into the desert. And ultimately, the idea is that they probably want to dispatch him. They're going to kill Nehemiah. But he, he understands their plot and their scheming, and he says, no, the work is too great. I can't get out, and I'm not free that afternoon for you to kill me. And then in verses 10 through 14, there's a second attempt to stop the work on the walls, but this time it's Sanballat and Tobiah who hire a prophet, a false prophet by the name of Shemaiah, to prophesy to Nehemiah that his life is in danger in order that he would drive him into the temple. And being driven into the temple, should Nehemiah have agreed, it would have come according to the Mosaic law, he would not have been clean, and it would have come at the risk of his character and at his name, and it would have been defamed. And so, again, Nehemiah perceives this, and he understands that this false prophet was hired, and so he rejects the offer to come into the temple. And then verse 15 and 16, much to the dismay of their enemies, the people of Israel finished the rebuilding of the city's walls and again in 52 days, which is remarkable if you've been studying this with us. And then fourthly, the fourth segment is verses 17 through 19. And it's a little bit different. It's, it, it could be seen as a effort to stop the rebuilding, but now if we follow the text of Nehemiah 6 chronologically, these letters that are being passed between Tobiah and some of these individuals. Now, we have to remember Tobiah was a Jew. And so, he has has, has, um, secured himself with some political power and and a bit of um, a prestige by these oaths and people that he's aligned himself with. And it's like some gerrymandering is happening. He sees that all of these attempts to stop the work has failed. And suddenly now he's going, oh shoot, I'm going to lose all of, my, all of my sway and all of my power. And so he starts sending these letters to individuals. Hey, say good things on behalf of me to Nehemiah. And he's hoping to intimidate Nehemiah. But going back to our aim this morning, in each of these moments, both the trials that we see but also the victory that we're presented with of the wall being complete. Nehemiah exemplifies a tremendous amount of resolve and righteousness and a boldness and a courage coming from his conviction of knowing who God is to be. Nehemiah understands who God is. And he understands, therefore, who he is and what he has been called to do. And it gives him great courage and it gives him great boldness despite all the prowess of his enemies. And so what can we learn from these moments in this chapter? What sort of people, church, should we be in light of these days that we find ourselves within? The first is this, that we are to be a fearless people. We are to be a fearless people. And it says in verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us. And this is the, that first attempt. They all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But, oh God, strengthen my hands. And it's an interesting thing how the ESV has picked this up. And there's a footnote if you have an ESV study Bible that actually the words, oh God, were omitted in the original Hebrew text. And if you look at it more deeply, a more literal translation of this statement would be something like this. Now I have strengthened my hands. 
Rather than a prayer, it's a statement of resolve. Nehemiah has heard the accusations of the enemy, their lies as to his motives for building the wall that he would want to somehow lift himself to a place of prominence and status within Israel. And he combats, listen, he combats their lies with truth. He says, that is not true. You've conjured those things up on your own. And he finds resolve in his remembrance in that moment of what is true. And listen, I know I'm, I'm kind of looking into this text perhaps more than it explicitly says, but I think it's okay for us to take this as an inference from what we read this morning. He, he resolves himself and he fixes himself. The rumors and the threats that were intended to frighten the people of Israel so that they would stop the work on the wall, and yet they were not frightened. And it says that Nehemiah stood his ground against them and he fixed himself firmly in what is true. Listen, church, this isn't elitism and this isn't like excessive self-confidence that causes the church to live boldly. It's actually the opposite of that. It's excessive confidence in our powerful and already victorious Christ that instills within us a certainty that our God will fight for us. In the words of Nehemiah chapter four at the end, our God will fight for us. That is where the confidence comes from. It comes not from my ability to eloquently give to you the entirety of the gospel and, and to refute every argument that would come against me perfectly. My confidence comes not in my ability to withstand uh, the urges of sin and my ability to each and every day live faithfully. My confidence comes in Christ because Christ has made a way on my behalf. And now by way of my union with him because of my faith, I am the recipient of that great benefit of living now faithfully. And by the grace of God, which is his divine ability instilled within us, I have boldness and I have courage that nothing will overcome me apart from what God allows. What a great encouragement that is if you're a believer today. And if you're not a believer, then you can understand the difficult trials and circumstances that you've been faced with. And in those moments, you only have so much that you can give. Is that not true? And we come to the end of ourselves and we come to the beginning of Christ in those very moments. So this isn't excessive self-confidence, it's Christ confidence. Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And we know Paul's words to Timothy when he says that God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, which is the word dunamis, which we love here at Capital City Church, but of power and love and self-control or a sound mind as other translations give us. Not timidity, Paul says, but power and love and a sound mind. See, the truth is the basis of this boldness as believers is, is that this forms... The truth of the basis of this boldness is Christ and Christ forms a courage within our hearts to live for him. If you're taking notes, jot down Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 through 15. We won't turn there. I was going to look at it, but I'll just read it. This is the basis of our boldness through Christ. The writer says, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things. Now he's talking about Jesus. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. Our confidence, the foundation of our boldness, church, is Christ's victory over Satan. He's triumphed over him. He's made a mockery of him through the cross. What can stand against us, church? What can stand against us? There's nothing. There's nothing that can come against the church ultimately that would prevail. The victory that Christ Jesus won through his death and the resurrection secured for us a certainty, not just of eternal hope, but of present peace and boldness on the basis that Christ Jesus has destroyed Satan. We are to be a fearless people, church. Number two, we're to be a people of discernment. Times like this necessitate a people of discernment. It says in verse 12, he says this. Again, this was Nehemiah writing these words. And Nehemiah is penning this and saying in verse 12, and I understood and I saw that God had not sent him. I understood and I saw that God had not sent him. Nehemiah perceived in that moment, even though maybe perhaps he could have seen through and understood quickly, like, I can't go into the temple. I'm unclean. But perhaps not. Perhaps in that moment he was praying upon his vulnerability and was trying to coax him into a moment where he would do what is wrong. But Nehemiah perceived and he saw what was true. He knew that doing what Shemaiah instructed would bring ruin upon himself and the work and discredit himself and the work. And his discernment came on the basis of knowing what was right and true in the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood what could and could not be done. See, as believers, I think we pray oftentimes if you're of this church, and you've participated in any of our prayers from times, it's not uncommon for us to pray for wisdom and discernment. That is not a bad thing. But I also think from time to time that we sometimes ask for the Lord for wisdom in areas where he's already given revelation of wisdom. The reality is, is that God oftentimes has already provided us with this means by his word, and by his spirit. The psalmist proclaims, we know this well, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. And Hebrews reminds us as well that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We want discernment. The word of God discerns. If we want to be perceptible, church, know the word of God. Understand the word of God. Be filled with truth. And what's more, before Pentecost, Jesus tells his disciples that he must go in order that he might send to them his spirit, who is the spirit of truth. And when he comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
And he says this, and he will glorify me. Now, again, this is Jesus speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit that would come to his church. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Brothers and sisters, it is the Word and the Spirit of God that gives us wisdom, that gives us discernment. And so therefore, discernment is both a sovereign act of God by His Spirit, but also it's a byproduct of Christian maturity by the Word of God, by understanding the Word of God. How many of you want to be wise in these days that you live? How many of us want to have wisdom in the days that we live? Thank God that he has not left us to just wonder and wander. He's given us his word, the lamp to our feet, and he's given us his spirit, the guide of all truth. May we be a people of discernment in this day. Thirdly, we're to be a people of action. A people of action. And it says in verse 15, as Nehemiah and as Ezra has been prone to do, so the wall was finished. Remember that? Ezra, all that time of prepping to come on the journey, and so we made the trek. Now here we have it again. 52 days, all the opposition, all the stuff that they've gone through, and it just says the wall was finished. It's actually a pretty significant feat when you consider the opposition, the distraction, the discord that's internal that we looked at last week, all that they dealt with over these 52 days of the pe- for the people of Israel, laboring and laboring, and they finished it in that short amount of time. That is absolutely remarkable. But I want us to remember this. It's the words of chapter 4 that strike us, where Nehemiah says this, that the people had a mind to work. They knew not only the task, but they were inspired by the aim or the goal that they had set their hands to. Peter says it like this, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Our present work, church, is informed by our future goal. Not just a future hope, but there's a present work to be done in this day. And may it be informed by what we know to be true that God has promised in his word as the outcome for his creation. Because not only do we know the outcome, but we've already received a deposit, which is the spirit of God. And there's also something in this too that is of, of additional significance when it comes to our engagement or our participation in the work. It's not being distracted with fighting the wrong battles. Nehemiah could have easily gotten distracted by all the stuff that was happening around. And what did he do? He's like just, a, he's just putting out fires. He's like, do, 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 these last few chapters. He could have easily been consumed with the opposition a couple of chapters ago that just seemed to be imminent and getting, stopping the work and getting everybody ready just to go to war. But he understood and he perceived. And he knew that there were certain battles that God would fight and there were certain tasks and battles that they themselves would need to labor in. And so Nehemiah, in fact, wasn't even looking for a fight. He was trying to avoid it at all costs because he knew that what he had set his hands to, remember the words to Sanballat, is that I'm about a great work. Church, we are called to a great work. May we have a mind set on action. May we have a a mentality that is prepared for engagement. 
because we understand and perceive the value of the good work that we have been given. Does that make sense? Instead, Nehemiah maintains his focus on what he had been called to, knowing that God would do as he willed on their behalf. Because remember the charge at the very end of chapter 20, he says this, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, this was their strategy, thinking that they were going to be attacked as they built the wall. And he sets up this whole strategy of how they're going to war and work simultaneously. A trowel in one hand, if you will, and a spear in the other. And he says this, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us over there. And it's such an interesting statement. So here's the strategy of saying, okay, listen, if, if we seem to be being uh, um, bombarded by the enemy over here, we're going to blow the trumpet and everybody's supposed to run to that space. And so here's this work of the people. You can picture it. You hear the trumpet and it's like, and so they all go to this portion of the wall. But what does Nehemiah say? He says that our God will fight for us. What a tremendous statement in that moment. Was it, the, was it perhaps the people who were to engage in the battle? Yes, it was. But Nehemiah understood whose battle it ultimately was. It was God's to fight. And so there's this mind for action, but also not being distracted with the things that would want to just take us off track from having a mind to work. So what does this mean for us, church? It means being front-footed. It means don't hesitate to engage obediently in the work of the kingdom, to pro proclaim the gospel, speak what is true, stand for what is true, knowing that the rest is the Lord's, that it's God's battle to fight. And don't fear because the Lord will fight for us. Let's be a people with a mind to work. Can we do that? Yes. All right, and lastly, and I'm gonna quickly finish with this. We are to be a people of firm belief. Be a people who are fearless. These times necessitate we be a people of discernment. These times require that we be a people of action. And fourthly, that we be a purple, a people, a purple, a purple of firm belief. <laughs> a people of firm belief. And it says that Tobiah sent letters, this very last verse of chapter, nine, of chapter 6, Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Paul says, as believers, that we're instructed not to be like children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by, or by human cunning, he says, or by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. We are instructed to be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And so while it isn't explicit within these verses, there's an implication of Nehemiah's resolve to righteousness. Just on how he essentially ends these couple of verses, he talks about this flurry of writing back and forth and, and Tobiah perceiving that he's about to lose this position that he's got his foot in. And Nehemiah is going like, it's almost like, he's like, dude, what are you even doing? This is foolishness. This is silliness. Tobiah has seen that the, the, the works and the efforts to stop the work has failed. And so he's aligned himself with, with people of significance. 
And while we don't know exactly what he said in the letters, we can surmise that given what Nehemiah records in these couple of verses, where he says, I told Sanballat and Geshem that they should leave you alone. Or sorry, uh, this is Tobiah is essentially saying this. It's like he's trying to get a, a position with Nehemiah going like, I told you, Sanballat should leave you alone. I told Geshem he should leave you alone. And see see what a good guy I am? He's like playing both sides of the coin. But regardless, we know that Nehemiah doesn't capitulate to those who would try and make him afraid of another's power and persuasion. And I wanted to read this morning, but I don't have time. And so I'll just remind us of probably the most prominent portion of the New Testament that speaks of our ability to stand firm and resolve and belief, both the how we are to stand, but also the what that we stand in is Paul's words to Ephesians and to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6. And it's similar language to what he would use elsewhere. He talks about putting on, and it's the, the portion of text of Ephesians 6 that's the armor of God that we know so well. And here Paul is giving us a strategy. But he says in the beginning of this portion of chapter 6 multiple times, he says to put on the whole armor of God that you might stand. And then he says it again. He says against the schemes of the devil. And he says this for a second time. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then he says right after that, and having done all, then to stand. And so Paul is giving to us this idea or this picture of the truthfulness of as believers that it's, and then he goes through and he talks about what it is that we are to put on. And again, we don't have time to go through all of it, but I just want to say this, brothers and sisters, the picture that is given to us here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 through 18 is a believer whose mind is fixed rightly, whose heart is planted firmly in what is true, whose feet are, are, have within it like the readiness to take up the task and to work, that, that holds itself as a, as a guard, a shield of faith that uses our faith and our understanding of who God is and what he is about as a shield against the fiery arrows of the enemy. And our weapon is the word of the Lord. It's the truthfulness of God. This is how we live with a firm resolve. This is how we stand in firm faith, brothers and sisters. We need to be people. These days and age, this day and age requires that we are a people of firm belief, that we are not wavering, that we're not tossed, that we're not caught up in this and that, whether it's a false doctrine or whether it's some conspiracy within culture, but that we are fixed and placed firmly within the truth of what God tells us so that we are equipped to do the work that he has called us to. Sorry, I just ran through the end there to finish this so quick because, I mean, I don't know. Can I go late into your ceremony this morning? It's, you don't mind, right? I, I, that's okay. We'll, just, we'll end it there. But let me just say this, this last statement again, brothers and sisters. Who knows if God has not placed us in this time for such a time as this? We know that we have been placed here. If you're here this morning... It's, because, it's not by chance that you've walked through these doors. Even if you're here just to come and celebrate a, set, a wedding ceremony, you're here this morning because our great God and our great creator is moving and shaping and making things happen and has brought you here this morning. Whether it's to hear this word, whether it's to meet an individual, 
whether it's to receive hospitality in a way that you've not experienced before, whether it's to, to hear and view the union of marriage in a way that perhaps you've not considered, whatever it is, you're here this morning because God has willed you to be here. And if you don't believe that, then I would say this, open your mind and your heart and ask God to actually show you as to why it would be. And I guarantee you, you will have a perception to some degree of what it is that he wants to do. Brothers and sisters, as believers in Christ Jesus, may we be this way. May we be a church of these things. And we've talked about it before. We are a people who I believe are to stand firm, who I believe are called to live in the face of the gates of hell, knowing that it will not prevail against us under the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Amen.